0: And page ninety six, they blah blah blah. This I'm gonna really need to uh, be lockstep with you in your gotcha. notes, okay? Because I don't think I mean I could probably open the book and find like oh he says something cool, like when he's quoting the uh, when he's quoting quoting Jacques Monod and um, Edgar Moran, and he's making fun of them for their idealization of DNA. Right when I think I think it's Moran who says. DNA, it's Adonai, right? Which is one of the names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Hebrew name, the Lord. Oh, see, Uh, I didn't know
1: what that was referring to. Yeah, there's,
0: you know, there's a billion names for Yahweh or whatever, right? Uh, But Adonai is is a way of saying Yahweh without saying Yahweh because you're not supposed to say Yahweh, even though I just did a billion times. I can do it. I can do it. I'm an atheist, so.
1: (laughs) No, that's that's actually an interesting point relative to the bonfire, the vanities. I mean, that shit plays, uh that plays into this, right? Because there was, I think, I can't remember if it's, Later on in the I feel like somewhere he mentions this this prohibition against the image, which I think the same logic applies because yeah, once you do that. What is the old thing too about the aboriginal? I don't even know if that's it's kind of an apocryphal statement that if you there's some group that thought that if your photograph was taken it would steal your apparently
0: this was a superstition among the native americans at least some tribes maybe the cherokee or something like that yeah that this this superstition that the the realism of the photograph stole stole your soul because it was right it took your reflection and so you could see this even in the myths about the vampires not seeing their reflection, right? Oh, they, don't yeah. have it, they don't have good. a soul. That's very Baudrillardian. Baudry- yeah. you know, that's an awful <laughs> But yeah, it's interesting that Yahweh is the unpronounceable name or at least the name you're not supposed to pronounce in Judaism, whereas in Islam, you're not supposed to pictorially represent right. yes. um, Muhammad. Christians just are like, whatever, put my body on a cross and wear
1: it around your neck, which is so fucking funny. I mean, eventually, with, yes. But I remember like, here, I got to look up the bonfire. Probably the Well,
0: there was probably some heresies related to symbolism. Well, it's, it's interesting, right? Because one of the breaks that Luther has with Catholicism is the over almost pagan excessive iconography in the Catholic Church. Right. And so part of Protestantism is... If you're going to wear a cross around your neck, don't have a little man on it, which, I, you know, that's just kind of another stage in the evolution of the sign, as Baudrillard would say. Fuck, I'm feeling so Baudrillardian today.
1: <laughs> oh, but, yeah. Listen, okay, listen to this. A bonfire of the vanities is a burning of objects condemned by religious authorities as occasions of sin. The phrase usually refers to the bonfire of 7 February 1497 when supporters of the Dominican friar Girolamo Savonarola collected and burned thousands of objects such as cosmetics, art, and books in Florence on the Shrove Tuesday Festival. That's kind of cool.
0: Well, so, the, I mean, it, it would tie back to what we kind of yeah, yeah, exactly. talked about with with Batai and Mouse, except now, instead of it being useless expenditure sacrifice, it's got a, an interesting uh, tie-in with religion and censorship and, uh, and that kind of thing. The very rules of eating of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which
1: is alchemy. To the whole state of things, a view of violence without object. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent
0: because what happens there is the murder
1: of the vanishing the point of reality. Let's not cover this understanding here. Thank you for joining us on Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. I was thinking we might need a new sponsor, the Union of Pataphysicists. We'll- we'll- <coughs> We'll see if they return my email. But before Taylor and I get started with our discussion today, I just want to mention that we do have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash MUHH. Consider throwing us a buck to uh, help support the pod. You know, We still lose money making the podcast.
0: Lisa, can I have some more?
1: <laughs> today, Taylor and I are going to look at chapter two of Baudrillard's Symbolic Exchange and Death. Today, that focus will be on the Order of Simulacra and uh, earlier in the week, Taylor, you had mentioned that you had some frustration with the text, which I think you had said as well before we recorded the first episode. So I just wanted to kind of maybe yeah. start, start there and kind of see what your. this is funny, too, because it's like, a re- you know, we're on sort of two sides of this mirror thing. Like, yeah, 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 in the sense of like your experience with this book and mine with with Anti-Oedipus.
0: Yes. Yeah. You've read this book before. I haven't. Uh, I've read Anti-Oedipus 4 and, and you haven't, even though Anti-Oedipus also frustrates me, but in a, in a kind of, in a different way. Yeah. I'm um, not, not unrelated, but, uh, yeah, I think that my, when I read Baudrillard, as I tweeted out in all caps, what does he mean when he says words? That's part of his style though. You know, I mean, I've read, gosh, now this is probably the f- fifth book of his I've read and I know he has a billion and they're all like 10 pages long except for this one and a couple of I'm just kidding I guess that I feel he doesn't bother with sometimes he he makes a pass at pinning down definitions that then don't really seem to be grounded in much and that's okay that's okay I mean like I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing it's kind of like when we read Libetal Economy, I mean, Leotard, you couldn't necessarily pin him down. yeah. And I think that he makes a show of doing that. I don't think Baudrillard's showcasing it and foregrounding it like Leotard does stylistically. I think that's just his manner of moving forward and doing his kind of sign analysis stuff. I just think that that's not, that's not what he's concerned with. Maybe as we get further in the text, we'll start to see... I know that the big chapter on death is coming up, and that's that's probably the biggest one in the book. Maybe, I mean, like, you know, at the beginning of this chapter, he tries to set up, okay, you know, you have the Renaissance and counterfeit production of... Or counterfeit signs. You have the, the Industrial Revolution and production of signs, and then you have full-blown simulation. And it's like, okay, so that's the working definitions. But, you know, he he kind of he kind of begs the question a little bit or doesn't necessarily prove that he just kind of assumes it and assumes that we as readers will just kind of follow along with that and 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 i think that you know it, it kind of reminds me of what foucault's doing in the order of things when he discusses, you know, these different forms of analogy or different forms of representation, right? He talks about resemblance and similarity and blah, blah, blah. I think that when it clicked for me, and I'll, I'll let you respond after this. I think what it clicked for me is that I don't necessarily agree with Baudrillard that these are successive stages and like they're bygone eras, like the counterfeit somehow bygone. I feel like there's at least some sort of Co-presence, so, right? I, yeah, I think there's some sort of simultaneity that he's just not concerned with discussing. So right. that's, I, I think there's a diachronic trajectory that he's not necessarily focusing on. But once I started to think about it, the fact that not everything is simulation and full blown—that there are there are these other orders that are either subtending it or co-present—I think when it, once I started thinking through his logic like that, I was more comfortable. So.
1: I yeah. Hope, does that make sense? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he does mention that each successive procession of the simulacra subsumes the prior one.
0: Okay, that's a good point. That's a, that's a good point. So I'm so, not
1: necessarily reading him against himself. I'm yeah. just So I'm just emphasizing it. By that, I don't know that he necessarily <laughs> would be arguing that there aren't, I guess, vestigial traces of the other forms within, but the movement is sort of, I don't know, yeah, it does kind of seem like it's sort of linear.
0: You no, know, but you are right to say that each each preceding order requires that next level order to subsume it and explain it. Yeah. Uh, or, or to render it inoperative, not inoperative, uh, subordinate. It's hard to say. It's hard to, maybe yeah. maybe as we keep going, we'll find the language to describe that movement. Because he does, even, but he does say something where i'm not sure if i agree with him or not i'm just saying i'm not sure where he's like oh do you think the primitives simulated or there was simulation for the primitives he
1: cut do you you know what i'm talking about where he yes yes kind of, At, one you, of the you, first you, things yeah. i wanted to talk about honestly Good. was that you, um, because i was super given the context of mouse and as well as a libidinal economy i thought that was a pretty interesting place to start maybe cool cool because it almost seems like yes even looking back at his own, at the mouse, it seems like the simulation is the potlatch is the symbolic. So it is in a a sort of virtual kind of virtual simulacra of, of uh, conflict, right? Armed conflict.
0: Yeah. This gets back to something that you've been pushing very, I won't say doggedly, but very, you've been pursuing this tactically, which is this notion about the sort of virtual continuation you know, the the potlatch and the search for prestige and and all of this being this virtual continuation of, or a simulation of combat and conflict, right? Yeah, exactly. That would be the thing where it'd be like, would Baudrillard say like, no, you, you misunderstand Mouse or no, you misunderstand me by inserting simulation in back to the quote unquote primitives and... I don't know, right? Because I mean, the way that Deleuze takes up simulacra with Platonism, right, which is about overturning the model and the copy, which uses totally different language and philosophical uh, concepts than Baudrillard. Plato is already concerned with how the simulacrum can threaten the idea, which is like the foundation, right, of his uh, of his philosophy. Anyway, um, you take the reins, my
1: friend, and uh, I'm, I'm along for the ride. I couldn't quite think of a good enough example with with a quote-unquote primitive society, but I was thinking back. Actually, this is young Agamben had mentioned this. He might have even mentioned this on one of the Wicked Leotard episodes about how, or maybe in discussions about how the Romans via gladiatorial games were already simulating. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if you can quite... Well, you know, the Romans weren't doing commodity production in the same... At least not in the same manner as... As we are today, right? No, no, definitely not. But
0: I see you have a, a actually a quote from Antioedipus pulled up.
1: Yeah, last time we were reading through chapter, I guess the middle portion of at It's the across, conjunctive synthesis part. Came across this little bit about simulation that I thought seemed to really kind of kind of coincide with a little bit of what because I think here they sort of are acknowledging, yeah, there is this break from the real.
0: Yeah, reality has ceased to be a principle. That sounds very much like what Baudrillard says, right? He says something very similar
1: in uh, in, in the chapter we've read. It is yeah. true that, that reality has ceased to be a principle. According to such a principle, the reality of the real was posed as a divisible abstract quantity, whereas the real was <laughs> divided up into qualified unities into distinct qualitative forms. But now the real is a product that envelops the distances within intensive quantities the indivisible is enveloped and signifies what envelops. It does not divide without changing its nature or form. The schizo has no principles. He is something only being something else. He is manhood only by being worm and worm only by being Jones. He's a girl only by being an old man who is miming or simulating the girl, or rather by being someone who is simulating an old man simulating a girl, or rather by simulating someone, etc., This was already true of the completely oriental art of the Roman emperors, the 12 paranoiacs of Suetonius in a great book by Jacques Bess. We encounter once again, the double stroll of the schizo geographic exterior voyage following non decomposable distances and the interior historical voyage enveloping intensities. Christopher Columbus calms his mutinous crew and becomes an admiral again, only by simulating a false admiral who is simulating a whore who is dancing.
0: It's yes, page eighty-seven of Anti-Oedipus. Yeah, that's a that's a very that's a very interesting quote. And so it's interesting to note that the emphasis that Deleuze and Guattari are putting on the notion of simulation. Not to bring up what I was talking about earlier with overturning Platonism, which you know it was related, but here right. at least simulation is about the non-segregative use of the conjunctive synthesis. Which, to say it without sounding like a fucking nerd so much (laughs) it's about it's about this fact that the quote-unquote subject who we presume ourselves to be is this fiction that is kind of subtended by you know by all these other a better way to say it a good example is uh when Jean-Paul Sartre uh, describes the the waiter at the cafe who is almost too attentive who was who was trying to be the waiter when in reality he can't be the waiter he can only act the part of the waiter and it's like because he's he's overly attentive and overly emphasizing and trying to be this play this part or trying to be the part instead of play it and instead of simulating it that there's something off off off-putting about him I think that that's part of what's what's involved is like when when we say oh of course that's what I wanted I wanted to kill my father. I wanted to kill my mother. That idea that we have to, that we are the part in this representational theater of the unconscious. We are uh, Oedipus or whatever. That's, that's when we fall into the paralogism, right? Of the third synthesis. That's when we kind of fall into this segregative use. And that's when too, we fall into a kind of fascicizing, oh, well, of course I belong to the chosen race for all time. That kind of feeling of belonging to a superior group, that's where they see Oedipus and and the and the downfall of that of that third synthesis, that way of perceiving ourselves as a stable subject that is somehow superior. That's why they turn to Artaud and rat Rumbo is uh, his poetry about being being a beast, being a Negro, being being a, what, a, of an inferior race for all time, for all eternity. I think that they quote that at least three or four times in the first hundred pages um, they're really trying to emphasize this notion about the dangers of feeling oneself to be somehow superior to, to yeah. others
1: i think you can kind of see too like the direct influence that anti-edipus has here and maybe this very passage that although i think bill has got this maybe some of the society of the spectacle shit would also uh-huh. perhaps be related or like be the inspiration for for what he's doing. I mean, it's a direct inspiration.
0: Uh, yeah, I would think the Society of the Spectacle would be see. I don't know the reception of the text in France broadly. I know more about like Anti reception, but I yeah. assume Society of the Spectacle and the uh the situation has had some influence. And what Society of the Spectacle, didn't that come out in 67? It's technically pre-68, but it would probably influence. Some of the discussions afterwards yeah
1: i mean definitely a lot of overlap as far as what it says with at least this specific simulation simulacra element of what baudrillard is discussing
0: for listeners out there who don't really like hegel but like french <laughs> theorists i would look at society of the spectacle look at how de boer manipulates kind of rhetorically the different ideas he puts forth it's it is actually very hegelian but it's but it's kind of fun <laughs> it's like fun Hegelianism, cute Hegel
1: art. Since we are talking about situationists, and I just want to mention really briefly, this is sort of skipping ahead, but I just want to make sure that I mention this because within the chapter, he does reference this sort of, uh, he kind of lauds, I guess you would say graffiti artists. Yes. Early, early taggers within New York City that would tag the subway trains, etc. right? And the sort of radical potential of what this is doing and this gets very much into like the Lefebvre uh, yes. influence as well, in terms of the urban geography, but Detournemois also it fit is, you know what I
0: mean? I remember the first piece of Baudrillard I ever read, and I didn't know this until I reread this chapter, was probably the Norton anthology of theory and criticism. I'm trying to remember where I read it, but it was this excerpt about graffiti. Maybe Baudrillard actually talks about graffiti again in some of his other books. He might recycle like, yeah, like I would. Zizek. Yeah, I'm sure um, he does. But yeah, this was a very interesting, complicated analysis because he's doing two things at once, right? Where he's kind of saying, "Well, it just." I guess he was contrasting graffiti exporting the ghetto throughout the white s- suburban areas versus where was it? Is it Germany? Is it Switzerland that he was talking about? There, they or no, is the Dutch right? And in the Netherlands, they had like a wall that was dedicated for. On this wall you could you could tag graffiti paint, whatever you want, but on the other walls you're arrested if you if you go outside that, that right. one designated and I guess his point being like, you know, this is kind of another way to try to uh, you know to police this uncontrollable movement of taking back the space, right? And and decoding the exactly signs yeah. throughout a
1: mixing terminology too but that's i'm gonna do well, that with. i mean with, i was gonna say that i was that yeah i was thinking too like the coding of the disrupting it's like a guerrilla disrupting of the code of capitalism because i think maybe that's the way and maybe you could fill in on this too because i get the feeling that when it comes to coding or code that Deleuze and guattari and baudrillard have opposite notions of that because for yes. Deleuze and guattari it's the the decoded flows But for Baudrillard, it's capitalism encodes the the real, yeah, encodes the real and produces these layers of simulacra or these different forms of simulacra that evolve in this kind of linear fashion, subsuming the prior order within.
0: Right. I think that he sees code as, in a certain way, the apotheosis, the highest form of the sort of structuralist oppositional understanding of the sign, right? A sign is only a sign in its difference, opposition to other signs. That moment of, which he he kind of begins, I think in chapter one, he discusses a little bit about Cicero, right? He does. Uh, So I I see that as as kind of like the taking that logic and ensconcing it. Whereas for Deleuze and Guattari, as you said, their way of understanding the stages in the development of the state leading to capitalism, you know, with the primitive territorial machine, its main goal is to code, right? And we see some of that with mouse, right? Within this notion of the, all the different forms of exchange and potlaps or whatever presupposes in order to function at all, that the signs are already encoded, right? That, that the the bracelets and necklaces and yada, 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 that lead to prestige and that incur a debt to be repaid, that has to presuppose a code of some sort of, quote unquote, value, a marking, if you yeah. will, is that was what they Inscription? say. Yeah, you could say that, um, you know, there's different ways of, of saying it. And for them, capitalism, because of the sort of abstract equivalent of money, its movement is the decoding of flows, which almost everything with Deleuze and Guattari has positive and, and negative benefits. The question would be, I think I think at a certain level, you can't necessarily oppose Deleuze and Guattari and Baudrillard on code, because I think that it presupposes to do that, one would have to make various translations and fill in various conceptual lapses, if you will, or just deviations in order to get them on the same plane. I just think they're working within their own terminological frameworks. And so it's interesting to just think about how they focus on, they both focus on code. Even in A A Thousand Plateaus, code comes back up and becomes very important for understanding refrains and territories and these other things. So like the concepts for each live totally different lives and
1: sketch out different planes of consistency. If I'm doing this correctly, but, to Luz and Wittari would would be with in the camp of Leotar in that primitive societies are already simulating.
0: That's very possible. I mean like this is something because that,
1: well you said yeah I'm saying that because you had said, okay, so they assume these things are already coded. Yes. The necklaces, the things, the little the items that the, are being exchanged within the potlatch are already, already encoded that's in the very rigid structure of the gift economy. Right. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in that sense, in that context, the decoded flows. So what capitalism is doing is decoding the social, those social symbolic almost, uh, you, yeah. I can t- kind of think of it in the s- terms of the symbolic order. It gets upended under capitalism and those right. are freed and it's breaking down those sort of cultural, I don't know. You would, maybe you would say phyla or like milieu or some, something like that. Yeah. I think this stratas, is, actually- I, don't, I don't have stratas. I would say file is probably more what I was this, thinking of.
0: This is where perhaps Deleuze and Guattari would say, if I'm trying to understand this <laughs> right, that what the, when I said last time, I probably said this a million times, but I'll say it again, what Deleuze and Guattari kind of say that capitalism haunts primitive territorial machine as like it's negative, right? It's this haunting shadow. And what the primitive territorial machine fears is the decoding of flows. And perhaps then that is like Plato fearing the simulacra and the wild becomings that it implies. And therefore maybe Deleuze and Guattari would agree with Baudrillard and say what primitive societies are trying to ward off, in fact, is the simulation inherent in capitalistic uh, oh,
1: that's good. That's very good. Yeah. I'm kind of devil no I'm, I'm kind devil, of no, devil's
0: advocating a little bit, but uh but yeah, so that's where maybe Deleuze and Guattari and Baudrillard could actually be aligned a little bit, even despite the terminological differences. Yeah. I think that perhaps then when and, and do you have the quote? We should look at Baudrillard's quote, which we alluded to just a few minutes ago about um Baudrillard asking this almost rhetorical question, like do you think the, the primitive societies were simulated? If you know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, here's the quote. The question answer circularity runs through every domain. We are slowly beginning to notice that the whole domain of surveys, polls, and statistics must be revised according to the radical suspicion brought to bear on their methods. The same suspicion bears, however, on ethnology. Unless you admit that the natives are totally natural and incapable of simulation, then the problem is the same with the above as it is here. It is impossible to obtain a non simulated response. To a direct question apart from merely reproducing the question it is not even certain that we can test plants animals or inert manner in the exact sciences with any hope of
0: with any hope of an objective response yeah yeah oh sorry you're right no you're good uh that's probably <laughs> now i'm rethinking i mean unless you admit that the natives are totally quote-unquote natural and incapable of simulation it's almost as though he leaves it an open question i, right. I yeah i think that i misremembered him saying Of course they can't. But now he's kind of saying it itself is begging the question by calling them, quote, unquote, natural. And he does admit that in that first regime that he's looking at with the Renaissance and counterfeit, when he says the modern sign then finds its value as the simulacrum of a, quote, unquote, nature. So I don't know. But but I but I but I stick with what I kind of said to you earlier about how if simulation is already there from the start, and all things human, or at least in the Lacanian sense of there being a symbolic universe that precedes us and in which we are in which we are born into, uh, or at least in which we kind of emerge through castration, blah blah blah. Um, then, of course, idealizing the natives as natural, quote unquote, perhaps in a in a base level rousseauism right with the noble savage and that kind of stuff mm-hmm. uh, unless we fall into that error, that ethnographic kind of prejudice i think right. is what baudrillard would say um and mouse too was trying to fight some of the ethnographic the ethnocentric notions that get they get imported into our conceptions and yeah unless unless we reproduce a, a rousseau about some sort of origin that we could go back to
1: i, I mean the first simulation yeah. is the first simulation is the name of god it's interesting, yeah. Okay, if you're taking the position of the atheist or ag- even agnostic, let's say, just in maybe in the context of um of Christianity, mm-hmm. because uh, that's the first thing that has no origin in the real. One of the examples of simulacra is that something like an angel, right? Okay, mm-hmm. there is there is no real angel. There are only simulations of the cons, you know, whatever the signifier of angel. Right. But there is, and there was never, there's never a real referent to an actual angel.
0: It's kind of like the notion of, of mana that we saw with mouse. And, right. you know, Levi Straub comes back up as the, brings it up as the empty sign, which means actually that it can kind of take on any value rather than that it has no value at all. And Leotard deals with this question through the notion of zero that we've discussed many times. I would say, you know, if, if I had a big brain, humian moment that like angel, <laughs> in the way that you're talking about it in terms of its simulation is kind of like miracles. Bonosa is basically the same thing as Hume on this, which is basically that there are no miracles. Miracles are a stand-in for our lack of causal explanation for something that's potentially scientifically explainable with enough advance in understanding. Does that make sense? Miracles are really the simulations of our ignorance. <laughs> right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean. Uh, yeah. That's that's kind of what I was thinking too. Mm-hmm. It is interesting too that to bring up Spinoza that he does mention Leibniz. Yeah. And Leibniz is God, and there's a few references to that here within the within the chapter that I thought were really interesting, yeah. even though they don't they weren't the biggest points. That but I, I feel like super interesting points for discussion.
0: What's one of the things he says? I'm looking up the in the index for eighty page. The 80. mathematically
1: minded mm-hmm. Leibniz saw in the mystical elegance of the binary system where only the zero and the one count, mm-hmm. the very image of creation, the unity of the supreme being operating by a means of a binary function against the nothing was sufficient ground, he thought, from which all things could be made. Actually, that's a Marshall McLuhan quote that oh okay. <laughs> that's a Beaudry are quoting McLuhan.
0: And that makes perfect sense, uh, especially with... Oh,
1: this, the, this next part's really good, too. Sure, yeah. Digitality is its metaphysical principle. Leibniz, God, and DNA, its prophet. In fact, it is in the genetic code that the genesis of Simulacra today finds its completed form at the limits of an ever more forceful extermination of references and finalities of a loss of semblances and designators. We find the digital programmatic sign which has a purely tactical value, at the intersection of other signs, bits of information, or tests, and which has the structure of a micro-molecular code of command and control.
0: And this is around the same part when he's talking about the, the quote-unquote bi- biology philosophers, Jacques Monod and uh, Edgar Morin, that which I brought up uh, at the very start when it, DNA equals adenine, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The phantasm of the code, which is the equivalent to the reality of power, is confused with the idealism of the molecule. We'll see Deleuze and Guattari discuss Jacques Monod in *Capitalism and Schizophrenia* as well. But yes, it makes sense that McLuhan would would say something like this about Leibniz and the binary, you know, code. Especially with the with the rise of cybernetics, with the rise of you know, information systems, computers. All that logic is very familiar to us, to to we modern. Humans.
1: But yeah, I was thinking God is the first
0: simulation. He brings up God. And, and let me find the, the passage. Um, I don't know if you have the text. I see it on page 75. This is about the automaton and the uh, the robot. And I found this, this
1: one the, with Leibniz and his binary deity is their precursor. The technocrats of the biological as well as the linguistic sciences opt for the genetic code for the intended program has nothing to do with genetics, but is a social and historical program biochemistry hypostatizes the ideal of a social order governed by a kind of genetic by code. a kind of genetic code yeah
0: yeah i think he is discussing the second order simulacrum simplifies the problem by the absorption of appearances or by the liquidation of the real whichever you prefer dot 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 no more semblance or dissemblance no more god or man only an imminent logic of the principle of operativity
1: Which is a banger quote,
0: I thought. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this is when he's talking about, the Baroque and um, the use of stucco in order to kind of simulate nature. So this is still the second order simulacrum, if I understand correctly, is still is the order of counterfeit or is second order or is first order counterfeit. And then first order, order,
1: first order order is counterfeit. Okay, so first order is
0: counterfeit. And then second order would be production.
1: Right. And then simulation. Fall now, would, simulation is three.
0: Now, would first order still be the Baroque, since it's uh, the use of stucco to like simulate nature? Is he still understanding that's, that? that, that as, as that's how it?
1: I. That's how I read it. Okay, yeah, that's Cause, how cause, I read it.
0: Because, because I would say this gets back to my trying to grapple with him, where saying I, that obviously the logic of the first order would still have a kind of it would still have a kind of um, functionality. Yeah. in the second order and that's why you corrected me by saying yes the second order still subsumes the first order and so, so it's I think not they, i think it doesn't bit, eliminate it maybe it doesn't right. eliminate yeah, it though.
1: exactly yeah and i think that operates very similar to like think of it as strata yeah yeah. strata and phyla effectively from the deluso guatarian kind of like model perhaps would be like a way to these are like set at layers of sediment <laughs> that are poured on top of one another so yes there. stuff can still emanate from a certain stratum. Up the phyla but as you begin to begin you know as those layers become more and more then that gets attenuated i think is the way to kind of think of baudrillard those resonances those signals from the preceding level yeah of strata are going to have a harder time going through the flows of signs and desire etc that are subsuming the original so i think it's in-
0: i think it's interesting that counterfeit is a that The way he, the way I guess I, I'm seeing it is like on the first level of counterfeit, you have this mirror of art and nature, right? And art is trying to reproduce, imitate life, imitate nature. So you have this mirror effect, whereas, and, and so that's, that's the, you're simulating nature. And then on the second level, I suppose that the binary perhaps switches and art is for art's sake right? Or that art is simulating with the production of signs, you know, you're, I guess it takes on either a a technological model, right? Where it's, it's about machines now that, right. um, But I, but I suppose then that the third order of simulation, the simulacra, doesn't resemble anything. It's not imitating anything. Is that, is that the point I think? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think so. Which is kind of interesting too, because he says, you know, He does talk about art. He talks about Warhol and, you know, Warhol and it famously with the factory, right? That seems to be more in line with the second order of That makes sense. But you know what I mean? That's kind of problematizes his whole distinct thing. Unless you're granting me that these, the layers or the orders simply attenuate. The farther you get from the original, the first order, it attenuates its ability to proliferate in a sense. But it doesn't necessarily eliminate fully
0: yeah it's kind of uh kind of hegelian alphabung kind of yeah you know, which dialectical would make sense. you know it's 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 raised up but also canceled out but not eliminated yeah, right? it's yeah. Just, we don't really have a good word in english for it i know that i've talked to, to some friends online about this but the notion we one of the translations we have of alphabung is sublation and that word just doesn't really mean anything except about um carrying, etymologically, carrying under. In any case, yeah, I think that you're right about the Warhol cans. It's interesting that it would straddle the two, the second and third order because the Warhol, I'm thinking of the Campbell soup cans. One of the things he's famous for, the paintings of the...
1: I think he specifically mentions the Marilyn Monroe here.
0: But that's a similar... Yeah, yeah, I mean... It's it's a similar procedure, right? right. Yeah, exactly. Except I
1: guess, would you say that Campbell soup has an original...
0: It's interesting, right? Wouldn't Campbell's soup be on as a sign with a kind of logo for a corporation? Wouldn't that just be uh, a second order?
1: Yeah, but, exactly. Right. But
0: Warhol by by changing by by, by reproducing it endlessly like a series. and yes. and, and Beaudry does talk about seriality. Yes. He here, talks a lot about it. Yeah. There, there's a way of denaturing it even further than right. its quote unquote natural image, and there's yeah. something it. it by 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 sheer repetition, it destroys any logic of imitating a, a yes. uh, oh, an original. Good. But this is where Deleuze, I think, is is actually close to Baudrillard, even if there's
1: a difference in repetition for real men that came up yeah. in my mind several times. Yeah, especially I mean, in I, the discussion of the serial, but I'll let you go. Yeah,
0: yeah. This is this is why uh I pointed you to the appendix of Logica of Sense where Deleuze's is tackling Platonism and uh, and and the question of overturning the copy model conceptual image of thought, if you will. So with with Plato, right? If you know, if if I if my hammer breaks, I don't look when I make another hammer. I don't look to the hammer I have in front of me. I look to the ideal hammer in the heavens of ideas, the quote unquote original, the model for the ideal hammer and I make that I make the real hammer based off that ideal hammer. But, you know, with, I mean, what Deleuze is trying to sort of argue is that this is perhaps suitable for a certain type of thinking, Mm -hmm. just as Euclidean geometry was suitable for a certain type of conceptualization of space time. But it's only when we advanced, it's when we, advance and continue to problematize and create new problems and ask different questions that it becomes necessary to suspend the postulate of, you know, parallel lines never meeting in infinity. Instead, the same way with Platonism doesn't allow one to or tries to outlaw certain conceptualizations of becoming, of wild becoming. You know, Socrates asks, is there an idea even for the tiniest things like hair and mud, you know, these things that seemingly aren't important enough to merit a, uh, an idea to themselves. And so, you know, Plato is trying to, to put a stop to to wild simulation, right? Overtaking everything, which would overturn the very model of the ideas as a model.
1: Yeah, exactly. And
0: so I think, I think Baudrillard and Deleuze are actually very close here, again, even though they're using, they're talking in different registers and they're focusing on different uh, different objects.
1: Interesting note here, too, just that in the actual book, the more famous Simulacron Simulation, one of the early, I think maybe even the first chapter discusses the map that exceeds the territory. Yes, very famous. the, The kingdom where they want to have an accurate map, a very accurate map of the kingdom, it eventually becomes so detailed that it's impossible to tell where the map starts and the territory ends and vice versa.
0: This is based on a Borges story, right? because leotard discusses
1: I i'm swear, sure i've, I've got I, swear it was, I could just go grab it let me it's grab
0: possibly it. leotard who discusses this example very quickly the kingdom falls apart before they can even finish the map because it becomes more and more infinitesimally detailed but yes you're right about this uh the map
1: yeah it is borges if we were okay okay yeah good If we're able to view the Borges fable in which the cartographers of the empire draw a map so detailed that it ends up covering the territory exactly, the decline of the empire witnesses the fraying of this map little by little, and it falls into ruins. Though some shreds are still discernible in the deserts, the metaphysical beauty of this ruined abstraction testifying to a pride equal to the empire and rotting like a carcass, returning to the substance of the soil, a bit as the double ends being confused by the real through aging. As the most beautiful allegory of simulation. This fable has now come full circle for us and possesses nothing but the discrete charm of second-order simulacra.
0: There you go. I do think that
1: Leotard mentions
0: this very briefly.
1: Hold on to my earlier point about how the strata can still get attenuates, but they don't, or they get sublimated or incorporated, but they don't disappear fully. It is the real and not the map whose vestiges persist here and, and there in the deserts that are no longer those of the Empire, but ours, the desert of the real itself. And that's page one of Simulation and Simulacra.
0: Interesting about the desert of the real, which is a phrase we re-encounter in the Matrix movies, right? Yes,
1: correct. Simulation and Simulacra is the book that yes Neo hides his discs in. I mean, so, this, is,
0: this is why we started our first episode on this book being like, all right, let's get the Matrix shit out of the way. Let's, yeah, which
1: know, is Deleuze- funny because it is and it isn't in the Hegelian sense. Like it is and it isn't a good example or a good metaphor.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, but it's good because it's it's a popular cultural icon that people can, most people, uh, you know, will, will be familiar with. I mean, Deleuze and Guattari, when they talk about the nomad or the schizophrenic retreating into the desert, they describe it as... They describe the desert in, in this sense as, as the body without organs, sort of retreating to that non, the sort of non-codable flow, right? The That which resists the machines and repels them, blah, blah, blah. And in that, so in that sense, I think the desert of the real could very much easily tie in with De Liz and Guattari's discussion of the desert. I feel like this is something yeah. that
1: Zizek also riffs on. Yeah, he does. He does. Yeah, he does. I was gonna say as well that lost my train of thought. I blame Zizek. <laughs> Damn it! I forget what it was. What I still understand in the book itself, and he mentioned this in chapter one a lot, was the the structural law of value. I still don't know, exactly understand what he the fuck he's talking about.
0: It's just it's structuralism, like we we discussed. it says this is the Caesarian understanding of um, of the oppositionality, right? So even zero one is just the basic the binary understanding of signs only have value in their difference from other signs right in the system yeah so that's how i understand now
1: in that sense you would say too if you're using that model then i don't see how you can avoid saying that primitive societies could simulate Hmm. because language language has persisted throughout all of the procession of simulacra it is itself its own form of simulation right it's trying to simulate objects in the world at least from the layman's point of view right the logic of it is to represent right whether it does or not that's a you know obviously we can problematize that that's been problematized
0: yeah i think i think that 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 the only thing that uh maybe complicates this would be you know because it seems like Baudrillard's getting to the structural stage after this impasse between use and exchange value does that make sense yeah which i think kind
1: of coincides too, because he does mention this sort of coinciding with man becoming more or becoming a machine in the industrial Mm, revolution right because if you think about it at that point their commodity production or maybe not commodity production let's say consumerism in the way that we envisage it now versus the way that it Occurred during the Industrial Revolution are are quite different, right? Now it is about consumption has superseded production as the dominant form, dominant social relation for baudrillard and he even talks about this as well in the context of caste society, which weirdly he says that caste, different castes don't that fashion doesn't exist within caste society, right? Because there's no mobility, yes, which is interesting because. In our current world, right? The what's interesting about fashion is that it can elide or it can lubricate one's how one signifies or you can yeah. be a false signification of wealth or whatever by having right the signs of X.
0: We've all seen the memes with the, the guy wearing t shirt jeans and shoes and gla- sunglasses, and then you you have the their fucking Gucci sunglasses that cost six hundred dollars right there. They're literally, quote unquote, high fashion. He looks like a normal slub, but, uh, you know, uh, his white T-shirt made by Kanye West is like $400. Something yeah. like that. Right.
1: Uh, yeah. But I that guess- is coll- that is collapsing the differential between the prior orders where I'm sure the kings and whatnot. Right. They would have the purple. You know, there was it is kind of a weird like yes and no dialectic to the certain fashion, because I believe. Right. You might even know the better the Indian like the Untouchables, the caste? Oh, you're talking the about the Hindus, yeah. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, the Untouchables, the, the they're almost, you can either think of them outside of the caste system because, or at the very base of the pyramid, if you want to think of it that way. Because but It feels the, like there would because be of their jobs,
1: right. But yeah. wouldn't there be like a certain dress? I guess
0: that would be the thing. I, 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 obviously, Baudrillard is using fashion in, in a very specific sense mm-hmm. because we know that in a general sense, fashion changes across cultures, across times, whatever. But he's yeah. using it in this sense of of a logic of the sign. And right. so if you, if you think about what he's saying, then, because there's all kinds of stories, especially folktales about, you know, little country boy who, you know, he wouldn't necessarily change his fashion by dressing up as a king. It would be counterfeiting. The logic of that older time period would be that of dissembling. Whereas I think now he's saying dissemblance and, and similarity are, are, are all a part of the code now. So does that make sense? So that, that one, it's not like, it's not like the country laborer who, who dresses up as a, as a king or a prince or whatever in order to get his get the girl to marry him or whatever. It's, it's no longer like, oh, he changed his fashion. He changed his style. He's literally trying to, he's literally trying to dissemble, right? He's literally counterfeiting He's into the skies, if you will. Ooh, I don't think I, of, got I, don't, s-
1: I have something interesting. Go ahead. That I just the idea popped in my head. So it seems to be doing is there's a logic. What fashion does is allow there to be simulation of social movement, of rising and falling within the class structure. One can take on the signs, especially with credit. With the advent of credit and the proliferation of credit, the potential to poor person to acquire the signs of wealth is made possible and in that sense it gives the appearance the certain the screen appearance if you will that there is a type of social mobility involved not only on the on that side of the wealth disparity but on on the opposite side as well in that like that example you gave about the person seemingly wearing normal regular clothes but the prices of those objects are quite high in comparison to like extraordinary. The, yeah. Extraordinary in terms of in contrast to what the average person would spend on jeans, et cetera. You can think about, you know, distressed clothing, et cetera, that is trying to give this simulation of of like, you know what I mean? That's an even a good example too, of like the simulation of where, right? That there's a so it's trying to collapse these class distinctions, but only merely at the appearance by appearance the gaze the hyper real gaze right that is simulating this notion of class mobility that really doesn't that has no referent and that is a way for the simulation to prevent class the libidinal band from overheating in a sort of similar tactic as potlatch because the capitalism can say okay here's the gift of here are these science now you can you can look here you can have the outward appearance of of wealth even though you're not really wealthy so that sort of pacifies this class antagonism and it's able to attenuate class distinctions in a certain sense even though not perfectly right it's not a totalizing thing but the overall logic and movement of that i think is, is somewhat right you see this too and this extends to vehicles the chrysler 300 is one i'm thinking of that is Basically, a knockoff aesthetic of the what is it? The Rolls Royce, Ooh, right? Yeah. The famous grill of the Rolls Royce is sort of being mimicked in the Chrysler 300. That's so one point. can take on the signs of wealth without necessarily being wealth. Obviously, that credit is another thing that I can't remember if he gets into that later or not. But just something I want to throw a pin in, just to highlight that for the audience.
0: This is good. And I have a, I have a quote to, to piggyback off of what you were just saying and boost it. Well, it's on page 81 of the book, but uh, he says, in its infinite reproduction, the system puts an end to the myth of its origin and to all the referential values that it is itself secreted in the course of its process. By putting an end to the myth of its origin, it puts an end to its internal contradictions. There's no longer a real or a referential to which to oppose them. And also puts an end to the myth of its end the revolution itself. With the revolution, you could still make out the outline of a victorious human and generic reference, the original potential of man. But what if capital wiped generic man himself off the map in favor of genetic man? The revolution's golden age was the age of capital where myths of the origin and the end were still in circulation. Once these myths were short-circuited, the only threat the capital had ever faced historically came from this mythical demand for rationality which created it from the start. In a de facto operationality, a non-discursive operationality, once it became its own myth or rather an indeterminate aleatory machine, something like a social genetic code, Capital no longer felt the slightest opportunity for a determinate reversal. This is the real violence of Capital. However, it remains to be seen whether this operationality is itself a myth, whether DNA is itself a myth.
1: That's a banger quote. I had pulled that one as well, so I'm glad you... Well,
0: one of the things, just to start just to start backwards, I guess, um, <laughs> with DNA itself being a myth, it's obviously interesting that DNA was, and this is why he's quoting Jacques Monod, who's, who's writing about chance and necessity in, in relation to the discovery of DNA, which would have been something that by that time but would have been at the most 20 years old. At the time of this publication, you know, this this notion about and I think this gets us back to this question of the structural uh, law of value and these other things.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: But we see so much uh, the use of like 23andMe and uh, Ancestry.com and all this stuff, this this resurgence of a genealogical fascination with genetics and with tracing ancestry and these other things. Part of it gets tied up with a logic of eugenics of of race science with with, with right? a logic with it's a it's a it's it's putting a new coat of paint on 18th and 19th century race science yeah, yeah i think, I think so.
1: elizabeth warren right is a great example of that oh my right. god yeah right, <laughs> right? the yeah, Pocahontas yeah. like the whole we don't have to go into that but people no no, no i mean I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense to do that in that sense yes it's a simul this origin that you're trying to find doesn't exist right like Right. It's made up, right? It's its own, the idea of a race or whatever, like it's its own, it's just a signifier, right? It's just another empty signifier in the whole simulated reality or what have you.
0: Yeah, and as we're learning more and more about archaeology and the quote-unquote origins of Homo sapiens, we are learning more and more that, that humans don't come from just one ancestor. There's a whole... Variety of species that came into both conflict and intimacy to form the species as we
1: know it. Notably, so, Neanderthal is the yeah, clearest that, example
0: of that. Definitely, I mean that's definitely part of it, but it's not the only part. Right? There's, yeah. there's all the I, I can't, I haven't kept track of, of of them, but scientists more and more now. What's interesting is for those scientists, they are using DNA in a certain way that I think. It's not necessarily mythological, right? Because they are using it in a way that is involving statistics and and obviously the scientific method and these other
1: ways, which of, Baudrillard also I'm, discusses yeah. here. Sure, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Relatives to statistics.
0: No, no, I sure. I, I think I think I just think here in the relation to uh, the question of genetic man, it's it's very easy to see how how the resurgent focus on it is also to use a Baudrillardian term an alibi for these ugly things that we've been talking about like eugenics like race science like new modes of supremacy
1: okay so he was referencing statistics I already actually read the oh yeah yeah yeah, that's right
0: that's right I, I think that though well that's that's in the sense of political science and in the sense of our representational our representative democracies I think that's a Perhaps a a little bit different. Obviously, statistics isn't just one thing. I I meant more of a outside of the frame of the question answer kind of stock response, you know, because because what Deleuze would say and I think Baudrillard would agree when Baudrillard is talking about the sort of answer being sort of pre pre-existing with the question inherent in it. And we're we're kind of kind of like the way that we take fucking tests nowadays, right? Which is about rote memorization and regurgitation, meeting quote unquote standards of standard criteria of subjects that we're supposed to memorize. That kind of shit, is totally on point. And what Deleuze will even say is about the fact that real freedom and also real intellectual progress comes with the power to determine problems, to determine the questions. Yes. And, and so if all the questions are already pre-made, that also means that all the answers, the answers are, are already are well. presupposed. <laughs> yeah, And that's what Beaudrillard is, is warning us about. Whereas I think that, you know, for Deleuze, it's not necessarily as pessimistic or he's not emphasizing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he, in a certain sense, Deleuze, you can read him pessimistically, but I think that his tone and tenor, he wants us to read him as trying to already assume some of this pessimism that Baudrillard's hitting us over the head with and, and say, okay, now now what then, how then can we turn that on its head? I wonder if, if Baudrillard's background, you know, as we've talked about with with Roland Barthes, or sign analysis with Henri Lefebvre, so you know analysis of everyday life like fashion which is what we just talked about if part of that negativity that sometimes comes out with him is a part of the sociological background and that difference is perhaps why deleuze yeah. and Baudrillard are so close yet yet very very right. different because that sociological interest for deleuze was was never a specialty right it was always kind of Another discourse uh, with which, yeah, yeah, it was like another discourse with with which to dialogue. Whereas Bojard is, I think that sometimes he's discussed as a sociologist first rather than a philosopher. Um, Theorist, yeah, exactly. So this is perhaps why I also get frustrated with him because I want to read him as a philosopher, and he's not willing to make that distinction.
1: I think as well that he's less hostile to Hegel Mm -hmm. than Deleuze. And though I I would say, is it fair to say Deleuze is (laughs) anti-Hegel, you know? At least on well, like a certain level, right? Like on a certain... <laughs> yeah,
0: but but also he knows very well that you can't oppose Hegel. You can't be anti-Hegel because then you're alpha bunged right into... You're, you're <laughs> right, playing, yeah, into you're the playing on his... Yeah, you're playing on his own fucking terrain. This Waiting is why he, for us. Yeah. yeah, this is why he crafts in opposition to contradiction the notion of vice-diction because his point being that opposites is not the extreme form of difference, which I always take as a, as a way of going around Hegel. I mean, you yeah. kind of have to go through Hegel, though, to go around him. <laughs> yeah. um, I think that's just, no matter what, you're going to... Yeah. But you can't oppose him. So, uh, <laughs> anyway, yeah, I I agree, I, with, I agree with what you said.
1: I would say that Hegel and Hegel through Lacan, because obviously Ooh. he's taking a little bit more of a Lacanian position, though not entirely like it. Freud is certainly a huge touchstone. The touchstones are the same, right? Marx, Freud... Mm-hmm. Nietzsche, for both thinkers, right? But it's almost they're on opposite sides of this dialectic.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wonder, I wonder if, if part of the, the difference, too, since we keep talking about uh, the, the trilogy, post-68 French trilogy, anti-edipus, libidinal Economy, and Symbolic Exchange and Death, I wonder if with Baudrillard, you know, if one of the differences is instead of Freud marks Nietzsche, it's Freud marks mouse if that inflects it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to that when we, uh, when we discuss chapter three of Antiochus. Yeah. As an excursus, because I want to look at his discussion of Freud in this chapter in the transference. But before that, do you (laughs) have that? You you have that, right? You have. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So before we get to that, I wanted to discuss, we talked about this maybe in the wicked leotard stuff, but do you remember us discussing, john baudrillard kind of pissing everybody off yes uh do you yeah, have it can you can you restate the anecdote baudrillard kind of got kicked out of every group he ever belonged to is there something
1: to yes this? there's a apocryphal story okay it may even be documented but there's a story about a reading group that was started and it was Deleuze, guattari baudrillard leotard I forget who else. I may, I may even Google this just to see if- anybody... Maybe
0: Foucault, maybe not. Oh, okay, here it is. You mean to read this? Sure. On one account, the occasion of the polemic against Foucault was the proposed formation of a study group consisting of Baudrillard, Foucault, Leotard, Deleuze, Guattari, and others, for which Baudrillard presented a position paper. And there's a footnote, but Baudrillard's polemic was so aggressive in his critique of his French contemporary so extreme that after a heated debate, the group disbanded it. So yeah, he, he kind of pissed, pissed some people off.
1: The book that's from is Jean Baudrillard from Marxism to Postmodernism and Beyond by Douglas Kellner.
0: If I remember correctly, in the intro, the editors of the work of Symbolic Exchange and Death kind of say that perhaps Kellner was a little negative against Baudrillard yes. in, in this book. I he was, that, but funnily enough, Kellner has the uh, the blurb on the on the back of the uh, of my copy of the book. This is easily Baudrill's most important work, so.
1: <laughs>
0: oh, but you pulled up the quote. So that, after that juicy bit of gossip, which is honestly why. Always fun to.
1: Uh, you, those dear. To, I think. I think yeah. that the intersecting lives, to borrow the title of the Deleuze and Guattari book, yeah. this milieu of thinkers is, that their interactions to me or I don't know. It's just really fun to read about that kind of stuff. I enjoy it, it a lot.
0: It, it brings, it also, some of the gossip keeps it keeps it real keeps it from being uh, all this super hyper uh serious shit you know it it reminds us that they were real people with real desires and real conflicts and and uh they could be catty and bitchy and uh they could throw shade apparently apparently beaudreau threw some shade i have the quote pulled up too but i'm just gonna look at the footnote before you start i'll let you read this one let me look at the footnote what do you got Oh, that's the one, that's the one footnote that's like a page and a half long. <laughs> right. Oh fuck, we aren't gonna look at that. But if we had enough time, we could spend a lot of time on on it because it, he does talk about simulated Oedipus and stuff like that. So maybe we could come back to it to that footnote when we go back to anti-Oedipus. But I'll let you I'll let you read this this quote
1: as to how those polled respond to the pollsters, how natives respond to ethnologists, the analysand to the analyst. You may be sure that there is a total circularity in every case. Those questions always behave as the questioner imagines they will and solicits them to. Even the psychoanalytic transference and countertransference collapses today under the shock of this simulated and anticipated response, which is simply a modality of the self-fulfilling prophecy. So we come up against the strained paradox where whatever those polled, analyzans, and natives say, It is irredeemably short-circuited and lost. Indeed, it is on the basis of this foreclosure that these disciplines, sociology, psychoanalysis, and ethnology, will be able to develop in leaps and bounds. Such amazing developments is just hot air. However, since the circular response of those polled, the analyzans, and the natives is nevertheless a challenge and a victorious revenge, when they turn the question back on itself, Isolating it by holding the expected mirror image response up to it, then there is no hope that the question can ever get out of what is in the vicious circle of power. And then it goes on. It is exactly the systems of advanced democracies become stable through. Okay, that's that's going too far. The vicious circle of power.
0: The end of the paragraph is just another sentence or two away. That is why the controlled responses of the dominated are nevertheless somehow a genuine response, a desperate vengeance which lets power bury power. But it does come back to this question about fundamentally who gets to ask the questions, how those questions are posed. That's real freedom. That's real power. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, and yeah, Deleuze is that
1: great.
0: Deleuze is, uh yeah. I mean, Deleuze is drawing on some of what uh, Spinoza discusses, some of what even Nietzsche discusses, particularly Spinoza and the emendation of the intellect and this notion about improving our our understanding, our intellect for bettering the the general welfare, which. One could see in the general understanding an idealistic way of thinking, but you know, there has to be a little bit of idealism, not in the sense of materialism, idealism, but, but a sense of like optimism, uh, right? In a possibility, in, in be, yeah, yeah, and being able to increase one's power and thereby increase collectively the power of the collectivity of communities. I mean, you know, unless you're a nihilist, right? <laughs> uh, which is. Really, I mean, re- rereading libidinal Economy, I keep thinking about one of Leotard's assumptions about Baudrillard and, and what he was doing in the 60s and 70s is this accusation of a kind of nihilism. I think he's including Baudrillard in that. And and, and a nihilism in this, and still wanting to wager on the true. Now, what's interesting reading Symbolic Exchange of Death, was obviously comes two years later after Leotard's, I would say, loving but biting criticisms of Baudrillard, he seems to have now incorporated the critique. And so you see that in the stages, and the orders of Simulacrum, <laughs> the, true, the true also has been um, for Baudrillard. I think he's, he's, he's gotten past that. Yeah. Would you
1: agree somewhat? I think so. If not here, then definitely later on in his work, he, he does to a degree. But I don't know that there's always that charge of this lost object. Mm. Or this lost origin being like kind of one of his one of Baudrillard's more reactionary positions.
0: Well, here he at least is acknowledging that the search for the lost origin is mythological. One could still question whether or not he he believes that or not, but that's yeah. that's unanswerable. That's undecidable. One yeah. one would have to have a certain amount of bad faith if one were to impute it to him directly. Mm-hmm. But if one were to go further and try to contextualize at least the earlier statements and juxtapose them, you could at least get something productive out of it without being in bad faith. Um, I don't have the time or inclination to to do some of that, but.
1: He does, I feel like, have the ethos that you shouldn't, you can't mourn the lost real and that later on he says in the book as well that trying to fight capitalism on the level of the real is a a losing battle. That's interesting. He wants to take that terrain and move that to the symbolic. Right, right. And that's where the the whole excursus into graffiti, graffiti. at yep. the urban level. Yeah. Because he gives it this kind of, it seems quaint now, but, you know, it is and it isn't in the sense of, like you said, there are, there are now designated areas for simulation of graffiti.
0: At least in that one example he gave of, he even named the wall of it, but go on, go on. But
1: I mean, even so Austin had a place called Castle Hill, which was a graffiti park that got Mm. moved or whatever. So there is still this if there's no threat to capital by graffiti, in the sense there is still a certain there is a move by the state or whomever to remove graffiti. Right. Right. They don't. It is something that is aggressively, maybe not as aggressively as it was at one time. Stopped, but if you notice it's definitely not something that you know it's only in a a certain context graffiti is allowed to be considered a cultural object one of the biggest ones was here in austin was the frog that the dan i forget the uh, austin frog mural hi how are you was this frog okay oh that's
0: the isn't that the Never mind. Go ahead.
1: So this was actually, I think they ended up moving it from its original thing, right? Because now it's got its whole special place, right? But I want to say it was Daniel, um, Johnston. Uh, yeah, Daniel Johnson. Yeah, yeah, it was a Daniel Johnson thing. That's what I was about
0: to say. I was like, isn't that? The... It was. It was very influential for D A Y music, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember Kurt Cobain. There's a famous picture of him wearing. The, the shirt the hi how are you shirt and there's a good documentary about daniel johnston
1: yeah so but it's still and i was thinking about this too in the film the film demolition man they have in the future of demolition man they have automatic defenses against graffiti people come and tag this little thing lasers come up and they like clean the surface of the building so there is this this kind of inscription this writing whatever property value is a big concern mm relative to graffiti right because there's connotations of class racial yeah, yeah. And, and class connotations relative to areas where graffiti persists it's this ever vigilant game that's played cat and mouse between the graffiti artist and the and the state whomever that is trying to keep the surfaces right which is really interesting like it seems on its on its face it's kind of a quaint notion that graffiti has this power and it's sort of, and it's like a memeability ability almost. Um, yeah. I mean, say. he's
0: basically saying the McLuhan thing that the medium itself is the message, right? right. That yeah. It's just, it's just names or that the message is zero, right? Yeah. So that that's because they
1: the, don't give their proper names, they have an alias right. that they use whenever they tag, which does
0: nicely tie the loop between counterfeiting, say, a Picasso or a Rembrandt whether through virtuosity of skill and, and faking a signature to the signatures themselves being quote unquote faked or pseudonyms. Right. And, and and the artistry not being about recreating or fooling anyone that it's some, some great lost work of art.
1: Wait till you see how I'm going to quilt this shit together. You're going to love this. As part of my uh, research for this chapter, I watched two films, The first of which was F is for Fake, which was released in 1972 in France. Orson Welles directed and stars in the film. The film is primarily concerned with this seeming, you know, it's a sort of a fake documentary with fake being in, in sort of scary quotes. And it's about it's a fake documentary about a fake. It's a fake documentary about a fake art forger. So it's all going about this, this certain famous art forger who was able to persist for decades or whatever and would do these forgeries of famous paintings and then sell them to art museum directors, art, art markets. He would sell these to, and part of the film is this other gentleman that wrote a book about the fake art forger, and oh. as part of his book, what he discovers when talking to the forger, when talking to the art people, the art experts is that invariably they would all find something to say, oh, you can see within the lines here, uh-huh. this is so-and-so's trademark, blah, blah, blah. So every museum director that he goes to to discuss these fakes are sort of taking, they're making up this whole, the reasons why this is an authentic piece or something like that is, is maybe the way to, to describe it. So the role of the expert is this tautology. It's a tautology in the same way that the pollster the polls are a tautology right right and it is only the experts the political the punditocracy Mm -hmm. the punditocracy and the art the museum directors the art market the people that are involved in this have a similar function in that they create this sort of tautology of these what what are perceived what are what are sold as real data on the level of the poll or an original or real piece of art by a certain artist, it's all smoke and mirrors. There's no substance to it. It's tautology. This, this, I, I'm an expert, so I can give value to this work of art that is a fake, that is not real. The same way that polls can give credence to public opinion, but are really, their logic is to manufacture public opinion.
0: This reminds me of why. We, well, first of all, why we should at some point watch Gizek's Pervert's Guide to Cinema? Because I I can't help but you know after listening to to you describe the narrative of Episode for Fake, just to bring it back to the fucking Matrix again, where Gizek is in my head famously like discussing the red pill versus the blue pill, and he's I need a third pill, <laughs> right? Need the third pill because you know if the red pill is reality and the blue pill is is illusion. Or simulation, right? Where it's like the the third pill would be seeing the illusion in reality, or vice versa. Uh, how are you going to put it? This is why, also, I just disgu- I said we have to read um, Nietzsche's Twilight Idols, his discussion of how the the real world, you know, became an illusion, or the true world, sorry, became an illusion. Very much kind of vibing with everything we said. One thing uh, that I think, again, kind of shows Baudrillard's pessimism is by discussing the stock response answer as the standard and falling into this notion whereby the transference and countertransference are short-circuited, which is another concept that Zizek's very keen on, I feel like there's a wild, almost delirious I don't know if it's an optimism in Leotard when he discusses how transference and countertransference is all around us. It's constantly happening. And I think that Deleuze and Guattari would agree with a kind of statement like that, that it's happening behind our backs. It's, it's, it's not just in the analyst and relationship or in the native ethnographer relationship, right? It's all around us. It's constantly happening. And one could even say it's collectively, it's even happening more collectively than individually necessarily but even in our individual lives even when you and i face to face and we you know i take on your faciality traits i take on some of your mannerisms your way of speaking you know that kind of stuff it's not necessarily imitation it's not even simulation right it's it's not even like conscious it's
1: right it's it's the machining unconscious
0: well yeah i mean it's just it's just that's little bits and fragments of speech of and this is where i think that like guattari would push back on this sort of omnipotence of the binary code that that baudrillard is trying to scare us with when guattari is is trying to disrupt the kind of semiological supremacy the universal semiotics that or the universal semiology i think is what he's the metallurgy is semiurgy that baudrillard is preaching here i think and yeah. i i do think preaching is is a good word for it. Cause Leotard might say like, isn't all of this still like too pious. Yeah. Um, this stuff I mean, about, you know, and th- this is also why, it, even if he's like, there's no lost origins somehow. Beaudry feels nostalgic, even if he's arguing
1: against it. Yeah. That makes sense. He does have a certain Zarathustrian vibe to him. I
0: think. I've come down from the mountain <laughs> and I have seen the code in person. Yeah. It's again, maybe I'm being uncharitable. I'm always willing to, to say that it's good to kind of be aware of when you know, bad faith kind of creeps the, in.
1: The question for me would be, does it matter hmm. in a sense, right? Because I feel like there's a certain, this notion of the hyperreality does have, it seems to be clearly working or society, whatever, seems to be moving like this almost to, the, to a T in the real world that we inhabit. In the world that we inhabit, what Boudreaux is saying is just it seems undeniably correct to me. <laughs> I, and that, I, I can go into that, but I'll, if you have a rebuttal.
0: No, no, I, I we're not gonna de, we're not gonna fucking well, I mean, debate not, on this. Not a, you know, I, yeah, you know right. what I mean. A response. repost. I guess I guess I would say two things. One, I'm still eager to see how it all works. I know when I say how it all works, not necessarily the orders of similar, blah, blah, blah. But I mean, is like how what he's gearing us up for gets us ready for. I, I assume the biggest chapter is the symbolic, the death chapter. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that because I still, we still haven't necessarily gotten to, what the book is quote unquote doing we're still getting kind of prepped we're getting lubed up a little foreplay you know um the only thing i would say about does it matter and i think that you meant does not matter that he's that he has well i would say i'm trying to vibe with him <laughs> and he's like he's making me cringe a little bit yeah and that's an unquantifiable <laughs> unqualifiable like feeling so I don't know. Sometimes Baudrillard just gives me bad vibes. Like it's a bad trip, man. I don't know. Bad. Weed. Oh, the
1: medicine is. Yeah, I mean it's bit. It's a bitter pill. If and, he and is right, but I feel like
0: you're totally right. You're totally right. I got. I got to fucking put on my my big boy pants and
1: stop. Stop whining. <laughs> just thinking about the way that he indicates that, or like draws this comparison, or that illustrated with with the way that polls and public opinion are shaped. Manufacturing consent, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is not a, this is not necessarily a new new insight exactly. Other than interrogating what that means beyond a level of propaganda and a simple model of sender receiver and all of right. that feedback response loops etc. Right, those models are obviously inadequate to describe because they don't have a model of the unconscious that works very sophisticatedly there would be events by the world itself. But I think looking at something, you know, as recent as the January 6th thing, I mean, that is, that is one of the most hyper real non events that's ever taken, not taken place.
0: Bozier, I totally would have written a a 10 page book on,
1: on uh, January 6th. Because it's, it's like the, it's like the Truman show, but not the, you know what I mean? It's not literally the Truman show. And the fact that Truman was fooled into living in this world, but it's the Truman show in the sense that the world is produced.
0: And surprisingly, so many of them had their own fucking cell phones out, taking selfies yeah, and, it, and, and and live broadcasting it. Right. Exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Right. Ex- further simulating the whole thing. But what happened when they got there is that the emperor has no clothes. The signification of the capital, the power, the seat of power, right. and then they go there and it's an empty
0: well, it's dog. Dog fucking catches car.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, it's. Um, so that's how simulation operates, right? It's like this. The whole motive of the rebellion is is fake. The rebellion is fake. The power is fake. Everything is fake. It's all just bullshit. You know what I mean?
0: Which is very, very in line with. Trump's modus operandi. Right? Yeah, it's the whole scope
1: scopophilic, oh. sc- the flattening of everything to the screen, really. The flattening but, yeah. and general equivalence. Everything is this flattened surface, this 2D surface. There's no depth. Thinking of the quote from, um, it's like my cousin Vinny. Remember when mm. he goes to meet with the two youths the and two they're in the youths. jail cell and he pulls out a card. He says, the prosecutor is going to show you this card. He's going to show you to it in a very... Special way, he's going to show you that it's got sides. He's going to show you that it's got a front, but what he's not going to show you is that it's thin, as this deck of card or this card or whatever, right? Yeah, right. And it's the same fucking thing. Come attack the place of power, and then when you get there, oh, it's revealed to be empty.
0: Yeah, and I, I always wonder, like, if 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 they would have gotten their hands on Pence, would they have?
1: Yeah, right. Would or- they
0: would they have taken him hostage? Would they have? lynched him? Would they have torn him limb from limb? Would they have forced him under, you know, mortal threat to do the thing that they were hoping he would do, which was not verify, you know, the exchange, the changing of the guard, blah, 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 which wasn't really within his constitutional power, but it was something that was kind of a part of the conspiracy theory that, that somehow Pence could you know falsify the election or or, or, or not verify it How you know you what's put it?
1: the funniest thing is the whole notion that the election was stolen it's yes it's always already been stolen in a sense always already you know there was by through public opinion polls etc the whole simulated element of the two-party monopoly the dialectic that the two drives that sort of prop one another up. You're setting, if you you're will. setting,
0: you're setting us up for the next discussion. I, <laughs> I, I see where you're going. I will say real quickly, since we're on this topic and we can move on to the Twin Towers, one of my favorite teachers, uh, Sid Littlefield, he's on Twitter, but I won't give his uh, name out because he's kind of covert. He discussed how the thing that Al Gore did wrong was when the court passed their <laughs> unprecedented and unprecedented decision that Bush wins and the count stops, that Al Gore didn't take to the streets. That's when shit would get real. So that's that would be kind of transgressing, whether I mean, one could say it gets on the real by way of symbolic transgression. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. If we're going to stick with the Baudrillardian logic. Um, right. Because then that comes down to, that breaks down the, the grip of, you know, and, and it wouldn't be, hey, let's put out a poll and see if, you know, take it to the streets would, well, how, how, do, how do y'all feel about that? It, would, it wouldn't, it couldn't go through this question response medium that that um, Baudrillard is, is, is discussing is already part and parcel of, of the system. It would have to be, and in that sense, to a certain extent, it would mirror what January 6th was meant to do. Even if it had different objectives or had different means of doing it, and even if it didn't necessarily end in physical violence, yep. the symbolic violence would have been similar and perhaps more successful. Who knows, right? Because that's a counterfactual. We, right. What if Al
1: Gore would have... Oh, yeah. I mean, that's one of the biggest linchpins of history in our lifetimes, is that election.
0: (laughs) In a way, it's like, again, we're going to move on to the question of the Twin Towers. You know what's funny? What I was thinking about when I was reading about Baudrillard's discussion, and I'm going to let you fill us in, was that in Rome, the most unstable form of government was a duopoly. You needed a triumvirate. And yet we see that two, the triumvirate tended to collapse into a monopoly. Mm-hmm. Right. At some point in the trio, things break down. This reminds me too of Eve said. I mean, with- it
1: seemed, here's the, it's like, you know, yeah. when it's the oldest thing in the book, it's whenever you get three friends together, two of them, three guys together, two friends are going to gang up on the other.
0: Sometimes uh, yeah. I mean, it, in what's interesting in between men, You've said sort of looking at how in English literature, whatever, but you can see this dynamics in real life, how the how woman is this mediating object for homosociality, right? A way of diffusing the homosexual drive and and that on the flip side when the man is the mediating object for two women, what tends to happen is the man gets cut out, and you you collapse into a kind of lesbianism. And I think that that's potentially culturally the fact that that somehow feminine bisexuality has always been a little bit more right, quote unquote, natural.
1: It hasn't been prohibited before. so much, so violently.
0: As, yeah, and and you know, uh, but anyway, let's let's get to. Uh, Let's get to one of the most famous parts of the uh, of this chapter.
1: Well, first I want to I wanna read this since I was talking about the okay about the political elements. He says voting has become absolutely aleatory. When democracy reaches a formally advanced stage, it is distributed in equal quantities 50-50. Voting merges with the Brownian motion of particles or probability calculus, as if the whole world were voting according to chance as if signs were voting themselves this is the most you see this in the sense that it's always the swing states yeah that are and it said okay your vote your vote counts more or less depending on where you are in terms of these states right if you're in a battleground state then your vote is more influential than someone in a state like you know what i mean the kind of texas the the bulwarks of of both parties would be like you know California Democrats, Texas Republicans. At least stands now. Texas is
0: is leaning more purple. Georgia went fucking for Democrats, and and yeah. and I think that we're gonna see more of that with Atlanta being more liberal.
1: And that is aus- what's happening with all the California people that are moving to Austin, especially over the pandemic. That's been a pretty mm. clear exodus. I know.
0: assume Austin has a lower cost of living than most of the Oh, yeah, yeah. California. I
1: mean, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but relative to tech, the rest of Texas, Austin is by far the most expensive, oh, well, expensive okay. real
0: estate fucking liberals
1: just to just to like give that out. So a lot of people make the argument that it's like your every vote counts. They use this, these battleground states to say that everyone you should vote because every vote counts. Right. When it's the opposite. If the race is so tight <laughs> that it depends on one single vote, then your vote is wor- is worthless.
0: I think every vote counts only makes sense collectively rather than individually, and I know that's counterintuitive, right. but you know this notion every vote counts is this way of hyping oneself up
1: exactly yeah, exactly you know, and, to, and hyping
0: to, up the collective
1: and hyping up voting the the voting machine or whatever the fuck the public opinion blah blah blah
0: i don't know if in france this was true in 76 when he wrote this but aren't there some countries like in australia where fucking voting participation is mandatory and you and otherwise it's punishable by baby fines or
1: something like that that is true yes
0: which wouldn't work in america given just our libertarian streak and all that shit can't, I mean, if you can't mandate fucking vaccines and masks and you can't mandate health insurance, then there's no way you're going to mandate voting. You'd, you'd fucking protest that
1: shit. <laughs> Here's another quote that gets on the same thing. He says, at this point, it matters little what the parties in power express historically and socially. It is even necessary that they no longer represent anything. Mm-hmm. The fascination of the game and the polls, the formal and statistical compulsion is so much greater.
0: What's the fucking guy on MSNBC that's like loved election races for so long? Steve Kornacki.
1: Yeah, is that his name? Yeah, that's the guy. I think
0: he's like a fucking sports commentator. You know, when when it comes to to like elections, especially like presidential elections, he's gonna fucking go out there for twelve hours straight and deliriously like, you know, break down the polls and the and the the exit polls and stuff like that right um yeah i mean mean, he makes it exciting but it's just interesting It's like i've loved this shit since i was a little kid and it's like "Ah, all right some people got i mean different strokes for different folks it's just
1: that's kind of kinky man but who's the other guy that the twitter guy that he oh you mean the pollster he got yeah he got notable silver yeah nate silver nate Silver. his His, his shit is really in this simulacra fucking total shell for
0: and that. and and mostly accurate i mean at least in terms of what uh, at least in terms of mean, the presidential yeah i mean what the his predictions are based on the polling and are uh, just his his taking refining polls even further than
1: i mean it's under the guise of that but it's all it's just more more simulated bullshit
0: I mean, the stuff that he says is sometimes cringe. I just, I wouldn't even talk about him as a person. I was talking about the gotcha. the apparatus that he set up was was very, very accurate. Much more so than many uh, other attempts at predicting outcomes had been. He had had, he, well, he or, had, one I say he.
1: He had yeah. like one successful thing and the rest of his career has been less <laughs> exactly. and now And now he's a, considered a, a scion of, of voting and blah 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 and he's a fucking idiot. The just Elon go, just... Musk
0: of democracy.
1: Precisely. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. In the way that we Elon do a little trolling. A simulated. Well, he's a simulated billionaire. He,
0: yeah. Grew up with uh, emeralds
1: in his I mean markets. Trump is the Trump is the simulacrum par excellence. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and a, perhaps... fake, a fake businessman perhaps like, that's part that of sells his sells only award. his na- yeah. There's a certain well I think to me, I've always I've had this idea. I've said this many times that the in America, it's not the um, it's not the entrepreneur that is the cultural icon. The cultural icon for America really is the huckster. There is a certain anti elitist ethos to the U.S., um, and so yeah, of course the fact that they can sort of swindle you, they can swindle the smarter person kind of the old european model of the person right the fact that they can swindle you even if you're a smart person and they can trick you into buying their fucking snake oil that that person the pt barnum pt barnum and trump are sort of have that sh- same shared legacy i think
0: Well, i mean this is exactly what Deleuze and guattari talk about oedipus when they're like look psychoanalysis didn't Invent Oedipus or introduce it. People come to analysts wanting more Oedipus, wanting to be fed the snake oil. Yeah, you know, right. wanting wanting to be reassured and in their Oedipal confines. So yeah, you're, I think you're right about that tendency to, uh, you know, to want to continue to be. You don't you want know, the what is it?
1: It's like they say in that movie, The Prestige. You don't want to know. You want to be. You want to be fooled. Yes, the desire right. to be fooled the whole thing was michael Caine giving the example I mean, of the what i forget the first there's three parts to the trick the magic trick one is the pledge the turn and then i guess bringing it back is the is the final is the denouement of that and yeah it's not enough to make something disappear you have to bring it back right if you just made something disappear people wouldn't know what had happened like they wouldn't have a reference point to But whenever you bring it back, it gives them that reference point. Okay, that's a trick. The trick is not to make something disappear. The trick is to reproduce it in the duplicate, in the series. And you can see that series idea applied with both uh, Borden and Angier's character in The Prestige. Notably, Angier, who reproduces himself over and over and over again every night. We never know, and it's never confirmed, did the original Angier drown in the in the water tank or was it one of the copies or does it even matter
0: yeah i mean i think this is why um baudrillard later moves away from simulation or at least emphasizing it to the notion of disappearance precisely based on the logic of 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 what you laid out because it's the fact that I, and to put a Lacanian spin on it, it's not necessarily that we've lost the reference point or the origin; it's that we've never, we never had it, right? Right? There, you know. And D- Derrida's good on this shit too about his, it, like, in his reading of Rousseau. Yeah. Because in 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 Rousseau, there is always this kind of paranoia that the longing for the lost origin or the noble savage and this other stuff that it's that it's merely a fiction, and it's merely like almost a necessary fiction with which the mind has to. Right. Move, Bootstrap move itself sort of. Yeah.
1: Right. But I mean, just you did mention the World Trade Center and the two towers. Obviously, Baudrillard has a certain fascination with them and kind of the same context of the, the double, the duplicate and how they're sort of just these mirrored surfaces and they are squares. And so they even sort of represent this sort of statistical like a bar graph, like two competing side by side bar graphs or, or charts, etc.
0: Why are there two towers? Right, yeah, I, I love that question,
1: yeah, which I'm less interested in. I think, relative to the remainder of the book, and it's been a while since I read, but I think what Baudrillard does in the end, going back to mouse, etc., gift and counter gift, and I think there's something to do with the way that the logic of terrorism operates. And so the fact that the terrorists can give up, it's will give up their death and there's no, right. there's no gift that capitalism can give back. And so yeah. terrorism is something that capitalism struggles or cannot elite. I you know, can't remember how definitive he gets right. his logic about, but this is seen as a potential area where, where capitalism is, is sort of powerless against the terrorists, because they don't value their life, they're willing to they're willing to part with their life and shut off the exchange circuit, the symbolic exchange or something like that. Not and that. we
0: we see what America tried to reciprocate with, which was fucking imperialism. And that's a hot topic, obviously, for you know contemporary reasons, pulling out of Afghanistan after basically 20 years. And we could have easily looked at history, say, what the Soviet Union tried to do, what the Brits tried to do. You can't... Fuck Afghanistan, it. <laughs> Afghanistan yeah. is not going to yield.
1: It wasn't quite... Was Isn't Afghanistan where Alexander the Great's whole campaign stalled? Or was that
0: further... <sighs> I thought that he stalled... Um, it was closer to India, uh, I thought. Uh, yeah, I, I thought... Uh, yeah. Alexander Webfrey had no more worlds to conquer. Yeah. You're right. I mean, I assume you're you're discussing the what is it, the spirit of terrorism. Well he, also, he he gets he also to discusses this in Ag- The Agony of Power as well. He discusses this some.
1: I think in the death the death chapter he okay we'll get more into this this logic. But um you know I'm just Even in going chapter off one... half-remembered oh. things.
0: Even in chapter one, he discusses terrorism a little bit and this notion of taking yes. hostages and right and this notion of only my immediate death can like symbolically disrupt short circuit the, the system. It's like, God damn.
1: shoot the hostage. Remember in a, what was it? Speed? Pop oh, quiz yeah. hotshot. What do you, what do you do? Hotshot? Uh, shoot the hostage.
0: <laughs> I mean, you know, what's funny. I, it was a cultural icon. I'd never seen speed.
1: I don't think I've seen all of it. Maybe, me. maybe. I feel like there's a um, Austin powers where, they're like, there is no world anymore. It's all corporations. I think maybe it's the first one or the second one. Robert Wagner, like number, number two. Ah, uh, yeah. Because he pulls the gun on Dr. Evil and he's like, you don't understand. Like, there, there is no world anymore.
0: That's interesting.
1: But yet, uh, Dr. Evil's from this previous paradigm where, like, that does, you know what I mean? So I think that that's kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, Dr. Evil's terrorism and extortion versus the Joker's.
1: Yeah. Remember the funny thing, too, like one of the jokes is he asked for a million dollars.
0: Yes, that's what I was thinking.
1: (laughs) You know, I could discuss a little bit about Synecdoche, New York, the film, uh, the Charlie Kaufman film, where kind of similar to the Borges story that he starts this stage play and the set begins to take over reality. Eventually, there's a set within a set within a set. And the set is beginning to resemble the set is so elaborate. It begins to resemble the real, the real world and distinguishing between that. And there's all these duplicate characters that show up in the film. I don't know. It's a good film to look at. If you want to kind of get an example of what Baudrillard is speaking of, he even mentions there's a line of dialogue in the film. And I, I DM'd you the picture that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character even says, I thought about calling the, the play simulacrum which is super interesting and then there's all these visual jokes of where there's two versions of his character and there's two versions of another character and they're doing like the same mannerisms and it's just it's pure this hyper reality it's hilariously funny in the way that it that it plays out
0: definitely have to catch up and watch the two movies
1: F is for fake has its own interest one kind of, and I may be misunderstanding McLuhan to some degree, but one kind of interesting element of F is for fake is how much the editing, the editing signifies Maybe or not. Eh, I don't know. It's not that the editing necessarily signifies, but I feel like the editing goes, the editing of the film being so one for one thing, it's an incredible achievement in film editing. Just as a as someone who kind of pays attention to those things, it's incredibly done. It's a, and the editing really makes the movie in the sense of the medium is the message almost was kind of what I was thinking as far as F is for fake goes. But it also gets at this notion of an original, a fake, a copy, etc. And yes. those questions. And then it even becomes this own hyper-real. Uh, retrospective on Wells' own film career because he brings on discussions within F is for Fake of, of course, the famous War of the Worlds radio thing that actually yes, was, yes. was a fake, wasn't real. It was a dramatized version of H.G. Wells. There's a certain irony there, right, in terms of difference in repetition of Wells, H.G. Wells, W-E-L-L-S, and Orson Wells, W-E-L-L-E-S, right? and dramatizing that story, that, that novel and that having these producing real effects out in the world where people thought an actual alien invasion was occurring.
0: Yeah. That's, that's, that's a very, very good point. Um, it's, it's hard to put oneself in the mindset of those listening. Yeah. Right. It's hard to think about that today with the, I mean, just the rise of conspiracy theories and YouTube channels devoted to fucking aliens are everywhere. The people in power are reptiles and baby killers and shit. I mean, like, all we're, we're, we're inundated in that.
1: I mean, Q, but, what is Q but total yeah. simulated, some type of simulated political economy narrative thing? I, I don't even know, but I feel like Beaugerard understood, he anticipated the logic of Q, Anon. And he anticipated the logic of the 9-11 hijackers.
0: I think that the one thing Baudrillard would say about Q, though, is that the followers are always asking, are always saying, OK, there's there is there is a legitimate referential. It's just it's just it's just about finding the right code to decrypt it. Right. It's there. There's, and so he would say, ah, but that's how it functions. That's it the hooks, simulated. It hooks them into saying there's a meaning Right. And I think yes. that for I think that for for Baudrillard, that's both its strength, but also shows its pure effervescence or evanescence. It's pure just. It and, and and shows how the conspiracy theorist mind frame is, is that everything can be decrypted and, and point to right. a bigger conspiracy, even by showing that the conspiracy is is fake or fabricated is a deeper it's just another layer to the conspiracy yes of course that's what they want you to (laughs) you know that that type of mindset that type of you see this too in like um
1: it's easier to accept that there's a conspiracy than to accept that no one is in charge and no one knows what the fuck they're doing it's a comforting right. narrative.
0: It's much yeah, you're right. It's much it's much easier to think of this big other that's a person, yeah. There's an um, actual
1: other that you can point your finger at and like right. when it's we're all complicit.
0: I mean, this is the same logic as of anti-Semitism. It's much easier to pin it down on one yeah. spooky other that's controlling everything and behind the scenes. There's something, but that that's also a theological reinforcement. Yeah. Right. That God is behind the scenes. And so right. therefore in, the, in worldly powers, there has to be a summit of all power uh, that can, that can be given a face to. Yes. And, and, and a name. Yeah. And a name <laughs> and therefore be a target of combat. Yeah. Oh, well, I say combat. You know what I mean? Be, be a target for a, extermination potentially. Right. That's another dangerous side to, to that kind of thinking.
1: This simulated shit also applies to these constant... You see this a lot. I mean, Portland is ground zero for the conflict between like Proud Boys and quote-unquote Antifa, Uh et cetera, or these like militia-type movements. So it's these people out on the... Yesterday, someone was stabbed in LA by a Proud Boy. And um, yeah, so it's just this fucking... Idiots are out pretending to LARPing revolution and revolution right? without doing without changing a thing it's like okay here do you want to get out you want to play your little game yeah capitalism can incorporate that too you know you want to have your little signifier your little MAGA hat the good thing about Antifa is all black clad does something different than the whole MAGA the patriotic
0: well yeah I mean it's it's interesting that they are more aptly described as counter-revolutionaries because yeah. they want to roll the clock back. That's why I "Make America Great Again." It, it the nostalgic hook of there is this lost utopic yeah. thing that if we just reinstate older mentalities, reactionary views, reverse progress, rehierarchize if we, society, if we, if we patriarchize. Yeah, if, recode, if we re- if
1: we reencode the flows of desire, then everything will be fine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, with, with with an earlier body without organs. Yeah, that, that's that's what, what Deleuze and Guattari will start talking about uh, in the coming pages. This notion of reinvesting or resuscitating or resurrecting an old body without organs, an old socius, an older one, which in fact is too also mythological or or, or fictional. But it but yeah, it could still have effects. That's what we learned from Baudrillard and Deleuze and Guattari is this notion that the fictional isn't necessarily opposed to the real. That the fictional has real effects. And therefore, fictions can be very fucking powerful.
1: My last comment would be just you've mentioned Body Without Organs, so I just wanted to go back and point out that Baudrillard, in a discussion of the graffiti artist, did say that he kind of did draw this equivalence. Of oh, that's right. Describe the city as a body without organs. So just to mention that and kind of he, briefly.
0: I tried to track that down in the. Books where he discusses body without organs. He mentions it once or twice in *Logic of Sense*, uh, but that's related to Artaud because it's Artaud's coinage. I looked at *Antietas*, I looked at *Cap*, uh, I looked at *A Thousand Plateaus*. I didn't see it, but I assume it was something co-written with Guattari. So the fact that Baudrillard attributes it only to Deleuze is like, oh come on, buddy. It does make sense with his discussion of, of graffiti and. The notion of exporting the ghetto, ghetto, the gettification of the white suburbs. I mean, the closest analogy I could think of would be with Deleuze and Guattari talking about Oedipus being part and parcel with the, uh, of, of the mass imposition of colonialism and its logic. So exporting colonialism or importing it, you know, if you want to put it that way, which, again, they'll, they'll discuss more in Chapter 3 of uh, Anti-Oedipus.
1: The next chapter is chapter three for this book is fashion or the enchanting spectacle of the code, which will be quite interesting because I do I do enjoy fashion as well, and I wonder if that discussion of the MAGA hats, the the proud boy like they you know they wear the Fred Perry yellow and black shirts etc. Antifa typically all predominantly black clad, you might have the anarchy symbol etc., but typically they eschew It's like this block. I mean, that's the whole idea of like black block is no one can be identified. No individual can be identified by the scopophilic gaze of the panopticon.
0: When I discuss, you know, protective procedures for against COVID with my libertarian friends, I'm like, (laughs) don't you want to wear masks so that facial recognition technology is scrambled and all this stuff? That's generally the only way I've made some logical headway with them, talking to them about the collective or individual benefits, you know, because it's always my body, blah blah blah. And but if you you bring up the panopticon and uh, and foiling, you know, facial recognition technology, they kind of go like,
1: mm, okay, I,
0: I don't want to be on that grid, you know. <laughs> that's like the best I have done. I think that for next time we do Baudrillard, we should probably read chapter three and four. Together they're only about forty-five pages.
1: I'm game for that.
0: And then I think chapter five is long enough we might want to do it by itself.
1: That will be our episode of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. See y'all of next week.
0: Of negativity and including the
1: ultimate form of which is I can't <laughs> Violence without object This is the typical violence of information.
0: It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here.
1: nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people as in block work orange.